Amen. Well, we are uh, going to be in the book of James this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word in print or digital form, I'd invite you to join me there uh, close to the end of the Bible. Little book, five-chapter book of James. Uh, We are continuing our Route 66 series, Road Trip Through the Bible, uh, working through all 66 books of the Bible in a 52-week calendar year. We're moving very quickly. We're keeping big picture themes in mind, trying to come away with sort of the big idea from each of the various books of the Bible and how all of those various books contribute to the overall theme of God's redemption. John Bunyan uh, told the story of the Christian life in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. And we have a group working through Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday nights. It's been a a really good time together. I commend that to you. If you have not uh, read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to. Uh, It is uh, one of the the real classic works related to the Christian faith. Uh, Bunyan describes the nature of the Christian life in very vivid terms. Uh, through use of, of, of imagery and narrative. And um, one particular scene describes Christian and his friend Faithful. Uh, they had both experienced the forgiveness of sin at the cross, and they were both together on the journey to God's country. And along the way, they encountered a man named Talkative. And um, this fellow um, talked a good game. He talked a lot, first of all, but he was pretty impressive in terms of his knowledge, and, and um, you, you really, at first blush, came away thinking, wow, this guy is really, is really something. But as Christian and faithful began to get to know him, they began to realize that his life did not support his claims. He, he was talkative, <laughs> But uh, there wasn't much substance you know, to his life. Uh, this was part of Faithful's response to Talkative. Uh, because you were so anxious to talk and because I wanted to know if there was anything to back up your talk besides talk alone. Also, to tell you the whole of it, I have heard about you. <laughs> they say that you are a man whose religion is only talk and that your conduct is at odds with what you profess with your mouth. They say you are a blemish among Christians, and that true religion gets a bad reputation because of your ungodly conduct. I have heard that some have already stumbled because of your wicked ways, and that even more are in danger of being destroyed by your example. The proverb about the whore is true of you, which is that she is a shame to all women, so are you a shame to all true professing Christians. So Bunyan doesn't mince words here, does he? He's, he's shooting straight here, really exposing this talkative for who he is, a, a sham, uh, a, a blight, um, And the letter of James, in a similar way, exposes spiritual imposters. It it makes us uncomfortable. (laughs) It makes us ask hard questions about the genuineness of our faith. Uh, James is 
going to point out those who are full of talk with no action, <laughs> right? Those who are like talkative. We've noted that each of the uh, New Testament books, the letters, has a backstory. And so as we step into the letter of James, uh, we want to stop for just a moment and kind of consider the major characters and what's going on here. That's certainly going to uh, bring color uh, to our, our, our understanding of the letter. So the letter of James was not written to a specific local church or individual, but to a broader audience. So most of Paul's letters were written, you know, they're titled Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians, right? They're, they're describing the recipients of the letter. Uh, in this case, the letter is named for its author, James. And it is written to a very broad audience. Uh, matter of fact, it's called, uh, this group of letters are often called Catholic or Universal and it just simply means that, that they are, are not written to specific individuals or churches, but to a broad audience. So there's no references here to specific people. Uh, there's no references to specific problems that, uh, that people were having. It's, it's a general letter. The letter of James was written to scattered and displaced Jewish Christians. So in James 1, verse 1, we read that it was directed to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are Jewish people, Jewish Christians, who have acknowledged and recognized Jesus as their promised Messiah, but who have now been displaced from Israel, from their homes, right? Uh, we do know, as we read the book of Acts, which tells us of the, the development, the birth and development of the early church in the first century, uh, we know that a great persecution broke out against believers in Jerusalem. We read about this in Acts 8, verse 1. Uh, clearly, these believers that James is writing to were experiencing hardship for their faith. And uh, they had suddenly found themselves as a minority in a broader secular culture. Right? Sound familiar? <laughs> I think there's a tremendous value here in just understanding what it is to live out our faith uh, in, in, in a hostile environment. Right? Uh, testing is a, is a really prominent theme here in James. Matter of fact, he begins and ends the letter by talking about suffering and trials. And testing is a normal part of life for the follower of Jesus. We ought not to think, what have I done wrong, that I'm experiencing this, uh, this opposition, or I'm being ridiculed for my faith, or I've, I, I've, I've been overlooked for promotion in the workplace because of my moral stand. Uh, this, just come, this is part of the package <laughs> when we follow Christ. And I think James is, is really a reality check for Western Christians who for many years we have not experienced uh, overt opposition to our faith. We're beginning to see that now. But this is normal part of life for one who would choose to follow Christ. So again, it's, it's being written to scattered, displaced, persecuted Christians. Uh, the letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus. This is a character we're, we're not 
super familiar with. I don't think we think about James very often. Uh, The most prominent James in the New Testament was James, the brother of John, one of the disciples of Jesus. But that James was martyred by King Herod Agrippa very early in the history of the church. So he could not have been the author of this letter. But the early church recognized James, the brother of Jesus, as the author of this letter. James 1.1 just simply says James, right? But the early church clearly saw this to be written by James, the brother of Jesus. And this leads us into some other paths that we don't normally think about. Uh, Jesus had other brothers, right? Here's Matthew 13.55. Is this not, speaking of Jesus, is this not the, the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? So uh, they're, they're talking about Jesus and his humble beginnings, and they knew who his, uh, who his parents were and uh, his siblings. And, of course, we would recognize these are half-siblings, right? Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Jesus was born by means of a virgin birth. But then, uh, after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary went on to have uh, other children. And so this is the James that we're talking about that is mentioned here in Matthew 13. Uh, This James would go on to become uh, the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. We have reference to this here in Acts 12. uh, But motioning them with his hand to be silent. This is Peter uh, who had been imprisoned and then had been released from prison miraculously. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So uh, this was all happening in Jerusalem. And uh, Peter makes specific reference to James, who was the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. Paul uh, also dialogued with James often about the nature of gospel ministry. Uh, Probably the the clearest place we see that is in Acts chapter 15. Um, James is working among the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And now all of a sudden, Paul is working among the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to the to the non-Jewish world, and that brought a lot of tension. How do these two groups relate to one another? These Jewish Christians were still following the law of Moses and the dietary restrictions and practicing circumcision, and and these non-Jewish believers, how did they fit with, with those believers? And so Paul and James dialogued on this at length, right? So uh, we, we see some, some glimpses of some of this even in a passage like Galatians 2 where Paul describes his journey to Jerusalem to sort of hash this out. Uh, he writes, For God who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles 
and they to the circumcised. So in some sense, Peter and James and John were, were sort of the counterparts of Paul. Paul's working among the non-Jewish world, and these individuals were working in the Jewish context. So again, another glimpse of this man, James. Uh, and again, when the church, think about it, when the 12 tribes were scattered among the nations, right, when the church experienced persecution, Pastor James wrote a letter to his parishioners who were scattered throughout the known world, a letter that was to be freely distributed among these Jewish Christians. According to the historian Josephus, James was martyred for his faith. And we have the words of Josephus convening the judges of the Sanhedrin, the religious leader Ananus, brought before them a man named James, the brother of the Jesus who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and condemned them to be stoned to death. So James uh, was faithful and paid the ultimate price for his commitment to Christ. Uh, the letter does reflect attention in our understanding of faith and works. I think this is something just here at the outset I want us to, to, try, to try to get a handle on here. Um, there's a bit of controversy that has surrounded the letter of James through the years. And it has to do with this whole relationship between faith and works. And I'll just summarize it by putting two passages up here. So Paul's writing in Romans 3 is on the left. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, right? Saved through faith alone. There's nothing we do or contribute to earn salvation. Polly said it really well. The light bulb came on for her. She always kept wondering if she had done enough. And then she just, it just, it clicked. It's not about what I've done, right? It's about what Christ has done on my behalf. And so Paul was communicating uh, that we are justified by faith alone, or we had made right with God by faith alone. Uh, James seems to say something very different, doesn't he? In James 2, 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So these two things seem to sort of stand at odds with one another and it's a big question it's an important question how is a person saved through faith or through works martin luther was quite critical of the book of james he felt that it somehow undermined the doctrine of of uh, of god's grace and he called it an epistle of straw or a letter of straw he suggested that it should be relegated to the end of the New Testament. Maybe a bit of a postscript, you know, at the end. Luther wrote, I cannot include James among the chief books. But this very issue, let's remember, this very issue had been hammered out by Paul and James at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And Paul and James and the church agreed they came to a proper, clear understanding of the relationship between grace and works. 
And so uh, I don't believe we should pit Paul against James. We just have to find our way through it. We have to understand what's going on here in these two statements. And I believe that read within their respective contexts, these teachings are not contradictory. Paul confronts the error of legalism. The teaching that a person must earn their salvation through good works. And Paul says no. (laughs) That's about what Christ has done, right? James confronts the error of license. The teaching that good works don't matter. It doesn't matter how you live. That too is a false teaching. That's a misreading of the gospel. So James makes a unique contribution here. He provides an important counterweight in our understanding of the gospel. James does not minimize faith. He defines it. He helps us understand what true, genuine faith looks like. Uh, Calvin summed it up really well. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. That genuine faith is accompanied by works. It produces works. A tree that is alive produces fruit, right? So, uh, again, both Paul and James are communicating different aspects of the gospel. So that's a bit of the backstory here, helping us understand who uh, the, the letter is being written to and their situation, persecution, suffering, displaced from their homeland, but also understanding James and where he's coming from, what he brings to the table. Again, James writing to a group of believers who've suddenly found themselves as a persecuted minority in a secular society. And James wants them to maintain integrity as the people of God. Um, His letter is focused on behavior and ethics. James doesn't spend all the time that Paul does in impacting doctrine and and the, the, the ins and outs and the technical aspects of our salvation. He jumps right to, he assumes those things and he jumps straight to behavior and ethics. He doesn't want these believers to simply call themselves followers of Jesus. He wants them to live as followers of Jesus. He's calling them to a mature, complete, rich, authentic faith. You see glimpses of this throughout the letter. Chapter 1, verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Chapter 2, verse 22, you see that Abraham's faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, whole, complete, able to keep their whole body in check. He is calling people to a full, complete, rich, robust, authentic faith. Uh, by the way, I think James is also placed in the tradition of Jesus and his teaching, and specifically the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. A lot of the same terminology. Um, clearly, James is drawing heavily on Jesus' sermon there. 
And that whole sermon is about the kingdom of God and how one enters the kingdom of God. And you might remember that at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he extends a very sober warning in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. That talk is cheap. <laughs> and genuine faith results in a changed life. Right, so James is driving at the same things here in his letter. He's concerned about those who have been living a split life, uh, saying one thing but doing another. He talks a lot about being double-minded. He uses this concept a lot. And he's concerned that many believers don't even realize their true spiritual situation. Three times in the first chapter alone, he warns them about being self-deceived thinking that they're right with God because they're saying the right things and they believe, to the, believe the right beliefs. But wanting them to understand that if their lives are marked by disobedience, they are deceiving themselves. They don't have the relationship with God that they think they have. In some sense, their, their actions, their behaviors are revealing the true orientation of their hearts. Their true orientation toward God. In the very heart of the letter, chapter 4, verse 4, James accuses his readers of being spiritual adulterers. Instead of being faithful to God, they had entered into a relationship with the world. They had been unfaithful. So James is prophetic and bold. Uh, over 50 direct commands in this little five-chapter book. We're being asked to examine ourselves. Where does your allegiance really lie? Right? If you were put on trial for your faith, would there be enough evidence to convict? Talk is cheap. Real worth, success, or effectiveness of something can only be determined by putting it to the test. And James is determined to put it to the test here. To challenge these believers. There's not a definitive outline or structure to the letter. This was another thing that frustrated Martin Luther. Uh, he accused James of throwing things together chaotically. He just really had a beef with James, didn't he? Uh, many have likened James to a New Testament version of Proverbs, a collection of wise sayings and practical sayings. So while there's not a tight organization, we can identify at least five general distinguishing marks of a person who possesses authentic faith, all right? So we're going to kind of take that big picture view and look at these five areas that would mark someone as being a genuine follower of Jesus. Uh, the first of those marks is joy in suffering. Joy in suffering. James 1 verse 2 Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So again, these believers were experiencing some measure of hardship because of their faith. Paul doesn't want them to feel defeated or demoralized. Instead, he wants them to understand the role of trials in the life of the Christian. 
none of us like difficulties, and I find it interesting. Paul does not say, I want you to enjoy trials. Instead, he says, I want you to value trials. I want you to consider them valuable. There's a a mental exercise that's going on here as you experience something that you don't want to be experiencing, but that you calculate in your mind and you view this as something valuable. According to James here, it's producing something, right? Trials are producing something. They are accomplishing sanctification. They are causing us to be, in James' words, mature and complete, chapter 1, verse 4. So trials are like a really good coach who pushes you to be the best you can be. That coach's goal is not your temporary happiness, but your ultimate good. And while you might absolutely despise that coach in the moment, you will probably come to value their input in your life over time when you have some perspective, right? So trials are productive. Trials are productive. Uh, God will sustain those who depend on him. Uh, Here's another promise that he extends. Uh, This is the whole section we're very familiar with. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So if any of you feel overwhelmed by trials, right? You don't know what to do. You you feel at the end of yourself, ask God. He will provide you everything that you need to be able to endure what is before you. God rewards those that he tests. There's a great section here ending in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So this particular blessing on those who suffer, particularly those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. So we might tend to think of ourselves as, uh, you know, feel sorry for ourselves in the midst of our suffering, or why isn't everyone else experiencing this? James kind of flips that and says, those who experience suffering are, stand in a particular uh, place of privilege. Um, they will receive God's particular blessing. And you, you just look at how many of uh, God's people uh, down through the ages suffered. I mean, you have Abraham who's being asked to leave his homeland, right? To, to leave all that he had known, to leave his inheritance, which would have been wrapped up in land, to leave all of his extended family, and to go to a place that God would show him. Um, Abraham and Sarah were not able to have children for a long time, right? I mean, these are all things that God was doing, not because God hated them, but because God was going to use them in a great way, and he was committed to strengthening their faith. Look what David endured right? Uh, On the run from King Saul, multiple threats on his life, even his loyal friends turning against him. Um, Trial after trial after trial, not because God hated David, but because God was going to do something with David. And so James draws attention to that as well, talks about God rewarding those that he tests. That ought to be part of of our framework. God always intends good for his children, James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted 
When they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sometimes when we face trials, we grow, we are tempted to grow angry or bitter at God. But God never intends for trials to lead us into sin. These persecuted believers could have become disillusioned by their suffering, right? It could have led them into some dark places. But James wants them to understand that they serve a good God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. He's extended to us the gospel of eternal life. God is for you. He desires what is for his glory, but for your good. Don't ever think otherwise. So James wants these believers to have a certain perspective, a certain joy in the midst of suffering and trials. This certainly ought to be something that marks a genuine believer. Think about trials as an opportunity to show the genuineness of your faith, right? It's easy to follow Jesus when everything is going well. (laughs) But what about when things aren't? What about when there's a cost to following Jesus? We ought to view our trials as opportunities uh, to, to grow in our faith and to show our fidelity to Christ. Uh, Another distinguishing mark of genuine, authentic faith is obedience to the word. Obedience to the word. This is the passage that Gabe read for us uh, this morning. Uh, He talks here in chapter 1, verse 21, Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This is uh, imagery here of, of God's word as a seed. And it's been planted within us, and we ought to receive that seed and allow it to grow in our lives and produce fruit, right? Here's the, at least one of the imageries that James uses to describe our response to the Word of God, to let it take root in our lives, let it grow and produce fruit. Uh, He has uh, several things in mind here as he's thinking about Well, and it's the whole mirror thing, right? There's this other imagery. Uh, Don't merely listen to the word, like look at it in a mirror and just, oh, just take in the content. But no, I ought to change. I ought to realize, oh, I need to to clean up a little bit, right? I need to comb my hair. I I need to change. We ought to be responsive to God's word. We shouldn't just go away unchanged. And again, James has several things in mind here when he's thinking about obedience to the word he goes through to kind of plot a lot of this out Uh, wholesome speech uh, verse 26 Uh, selfless compassion here's again that familiar portion religion that god our father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress Uh, these are helping people who have Maybe in some cases have nothing to offer you in return, right? This is the nature of true gospel love. Um, Keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. So continuing to live distinct as God's holy people and not 
uh, embracing the value system and the secular mindset of the culture. And then he goes into a whole section on loving others in chapter 2. He talks about maybe the tendency to see someone come in who is rich and and is dressed uh, in, in, in nice clothing and to sort of show them certain attention and to see a poor person come in and to avoid them, right? This, this, is, this should not be. Uh, this, this is not the love of the gospel, the indiscriminate, uncon- unconditional love of the gospel. So he's calling them to an obedience to the word in these very practical uh, domains, Again, saying and summarizing that genuine faith is demonstrated in action. And he uses uh, a couple illustrations, one from Abraham, one from Rahab. Right? Abraham believed God. Uh, he, he had faith in God. But the real demonstration of his faith was the fact that he was willing to take his son, his only son, Isaac, up on the mountain and he was prepared to offer him as a sacrifice to God, in obedience to God's command, right? Now, God held back Abraham's hand. He didn't have to, 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 to swing that knife, but he was prepared to. And that showed the completeness of his faith, right? He truly believed God. Uh, Rahab, here she is in the city of Jericho, remember? A walled city, a well-fortified city, and a couple of... Israelite spies had come into the city and Rahab believed that God was going to give these bumbling people the city of Jericho. (laughs) These were people that had come out of Egypt as slaves. They had no weapons. They had no military training. And yet Rahab believed that their God was stronger than the walls of Jericho. And she believed it so much that she was willing to risk her whole life, right? I mean, if she would have been caught harboring those spies, she would have been put to death. But her, her actions validated her faith. So James is saying we, we need to not just hear the word, but we need to do it. The proof is in the action. Proper speech is another one of those distinguishing marks of authentic faith. Chapter 3, verse 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. 
Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The tongue is very small, a small part of our body anyways, but it is very powerful. It bears tremendous influence So it's like the bit, that little piece of metal that would go in the mouth of a horse. And this powerful, big horse can be steered and controlled by that little bit in the mouth, right? A rudder, a little flap, uh, relatively small in comparison to the size of the ship, but it steers that big ship, right? A spark, just a little spark that can start a roaring, out-of-control fire. Now, this is the tongue. And the tongue reveals what is in the heart. Right? That's where he ends with these questions. He ends this section with these questions. Can a fig tree bear olives? Can a salt spring produce fresh water? The answer is no. If, 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 uh, if, if, Olives are being produced, that's, that's what's in the heart. That's what kind of a tree you are. Right? If, if salt water is, is, is coming out of you, that's because salt is what's in you. So our speech reveals the true orientation of our heart. And our speech should produce our speech should produce peace, not division. So how do we distinguish between good speech and bad speech, the type of speech that we ought to have and be characterized by? Good speech leads to peace and unity. Bad speech leads to destruction and division. But speech, this is another test of authentic faith. Four, orientation towards possessions. Here we have a couple of confrontations. Uh, really against arrogance and boasting. Um, Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, while you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So he's urging them not to presume on God or arrogantly trust in your own ingenuity. He says, do not pursue wealth through unjust means. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, talks about a a wealthy individual who has made their money by being violent towards other people, right? By taking what is not his, by not paying his employees what he should pay them. And he's gathering and profiting uh, by his cruelty, Instead, we are to patiently wait on God to reward us in due time. So we shouldn't be out grasping and trying to get ahead and gather at all costs, no matter what I have to do to anybody else. Uh, We should work hard and trust God to reward us. And he uses here the example of the farmer, right? The patience of the farmer who goes out, plants his seed, does the work, and then waits for the harvest to come. There's not immediate gratification. It's a long-term process. But there's the pattern. He talks about the prophets. 
uh, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. By the way, when you look at the prophets, things didn't go very well for them. Most of them died because of their fidelity to the Lord. But they stand to receive great reward in due time. Job, what a lot of misery he endured. And yet, God brought about great generosity and reward in Job's life at the end of the day. So these are the models for how we ought to view wealth and possessions. Uh, We ought not to presume or pursue uh, wealth through unjust means, but work and wait. And then he closes with a section here on the power of prayer. Urges us to pray for ourselves. Verse 13 of chapter 5, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Every verse here in this section talks about prayer. But are you in trouble? Are you suffering? Here he comes back to that theme again. Pray. Go go to God. And we ought also to pray for each other. Um, Verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. By the way, that little word sick in verse 14, about half the time it's used, it's describing not physical sickness, but soul sickness, sickness of heart, discouragement, depression, despair. Again, he's talking to suffering believers. And I think what he's saying is, if, you can't, if you're in trouble, pray. If you're going through hardship, pray. If you can't pray, <laughs> find someone who will pray for you. <laughs> call, call on the elders of the church to pray over you so there's this corporate aspect and it's not just the elders he goes on to say pray for each other that you may be healed in verse 16 so this this corporate call to engage in prayer this this too ought to be a mark of authentic faith that we are not just engaged in something that can be accomplished by human effort and striving Uh, we're engaged in something that can only be accomplished by the power of god So we ought to be people of prayer. These are some of the marks, the distinguishing marks of genuine faith. The marks of a life that have been transformed by the power of the gospel.